so all across the southeast in the fall this time of year uh, large crowds of people gather in the cold they gather in the rain they gather in the wind and they tailgate together and they watch football together and we have just a taste of that now we lived through the heat of summer out here together sweating and pouring sweat in the worship of God as a family doing the best that we could under the circumstances that we live and let me just remind you that now as we enter into the fall it's probably a shorter season uh, that we'll be doing this out here but it is good to do this and we know that it's cold we're thankful worship was a little later today that was good for all of us uh, but we are doing what we can do to be the people of God and to worship rightly as God would have us do and that brings us to our passage this morning and where we've been considering uh, the church according to Scripture. So if you've been with us, you know that we look first in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3 at our first parents, Adam and Eve, that God created in his own image and that they were then soon banished from God's presence because of their disobedience to God's word. And we saw that our first parents and their offspring that was Benny were doomed to wander the earth, homeless, and yet knowing that they would be homeward bound, ultimately. And then we saw last week in week three of looking at the church according to scripture, this big overview of our origin as the people of God. We saw that those people wandering in the desert, homeless for hundreds of years, they were in need of a leader. They were in need of a voice to give direction, to bring God's word to them. And so God raised up a leader. He instituted the office of a prophet. And he did that in Exodus chapter three with Moses. So the people needed a voice, they needed direction, they needed a leader, and God gave that to them. But we also saw that there was a leader behind the leader, and that was God himself, who used the office of a prophet, but that God himself was the leader. And the leader that we need, the prophet that we need, is the prophet that we have. The Lord Jesus himself who came to reveal the will of God for his people's salvation. And now this week we're going to consider those wandering homeless people who've been given a prophet for direction. And now God calls those people to worship. And there's a desperate need for direction in the area of worship. And God will institute in our text today the office of a priest the office of one who would speak and lead faithfully that the people of God might worship God faithfully and not be left to themselves to try to figure this out or to make it up as they go along. So with that long introduction, here's a longer reading that I will not apologize for because the temperature has risen and it's the word of God that introduces the office of a priest to us. I want you to listen to the detail. I'm giving you the full reading of Leviticus chapter 9 and it's painstaking detail because that's what you need to hear 
that God's given us. It shows us his care about his worship. So Leviticus chapter 9, verses 1 through 24, in all of its gory detail. On the eighth day, Moses, the prophet, summoned Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. He said to Aaron, take a bull calf for your sin offering and a ram for your burnt offering, both without defect, meaning they're perfect, and present them before the Lord. Then say to the Israelites, take a male goat for a sin offering and a calf and a lamb, both a year old and without defect, for a burnt offering, and an ox, and a ram for a fellowship offering to sacrifice before the Lord, together with a grain offering mixed with olive oil. For today the Lord will appear before you. They took the things that Moses commanded to the front of the tent of meeting, and the entire assembly came near and stood before the Lord. And then Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded you to do so that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. Moses said to Aaron, come to the altar and sacrifice your sin offering and your burnt offering and make atonement for yourself and all the people. Sacrifice the offering that is for the people and make atonement for them as the Lord has commanded. So Aaron came to the altar and slaughtered the calf as a sin offering for himself. His sons brought the blood to him, and he dipped his finger into the blood, and he put it on the horns of the altar. The rest of the blood he poured out at the base of the altar. And on the altar he burned the fat, the kidneys, and the long lobe of the liver from the sin offering, as the Lord commanded Moses. The flesh and the hide he burned up outside the camp. Then he slaughtered the burnt offering. His sons handed him the blood, and he splashed it against the sides of the altar. They handed him the burnt offering piece by piece, including the head, and he burned them on the altar. He washed the internal organs and the legs and burned them on top of the burnt offering on the altar. Aaron then brought the offering that was for the people, and he took the goat for the people's sin offering and slaughtered it and offered it for a sin offering as he did with the first one. He brought the burnt offering and offered it in the prescribed way. He also brought the grain offering. He took a handful of it and he burned it on the altar in addition to the morning's burnt offering. He slaughtered the ox and the ram as the fellowship offering for the people. His sons handed him the blood and he splashed it against the sides of the altar. But the fat portions of the ox and the ram, the fat tail, the layer of fat, the kidneys, and the long lobe of the liver, these they laid on the breasts. And then Aaron burned the fat on the altar. 
Aaron waved the breasts and the right thigh before the Lord as a wave offering, as Moses commanded. Then Aaron lifted his hands toward the people and blessed them. And having sacrificed the sin offering, the burnt offering, and the fellowship offering, he stepped down. Moses and Aaron then went into the tent of meeting, and when they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people, and fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy, and they fell face down. Well, let's pray that God would help us understand and apply his word. Lord, would you open our eyes, open our minds, open our hearts to see what it means to be your people, to be your worshipers, to be your church. And may we be faithful in that calling. Amen. What a long text. And it sounds like repetitive detail. And it's a bloody detail. And some of you don't like blood. I've heard that. Some weeks ago we preached a similar sermon to this. And and my children still quote me from that sermon. Where I said, blood, 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 blood. And this morning the sermon really is about blood, 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 blood. There's this emphasis on blood and death and being chopped into pieces in the text that we just read about worship. What sense does this make? Is this where the wheels come off and we start to wonder why in the world is this guy up front doing the talking? Well, this is God's word. This is what he's given us in the Old Covenant to teach us about his holiness and who he is and how his people are to regard him and how we're to worship him. And it can seem bizarre. If you're here for the first time this morning, if you're listening to a passage like this for the first time, I suspect you're very confused and maybe a little concerned. But I would say listen for about 25 more minutes and let's see if these things can come together in some way that makes a little bit more sense than it does. Three simple points this morning and the first one is this. These people have been wandering, they've been banished, and now he calls, God calls his people to worship him. The Lord calls his people to worship. Now remember the context that is just a few chapters before this. Moses had gone up on the mountain to be with the Lord, to meet with the Lord, to get word from the Lord. And Aaron, appointed as priest, remains with the people. And the people get restless, as they tend to do. They start to murmur. They get frustrated. Why has Moses gone so long? And so they decide to take matters into their own hands. And they lean on Aaron the priest to tell him what to do, to influence him about worship. And the conclusion to that was Aaron said, well, give me some gold. Give me your gold. Give me your earrings. And Aaron melts that down into the image of a calf. And the people bow down and worship an idol, which always angers the Lord. 
that they would take something created and fashion it into an image of creation and then worship it instead of the creator is blasphemous to the living God. And so God's anger and frustration burns against his people. That was just a few chapters earlier at the end of Exodus, Exodus chapter 32. And so the Lord does something about this. The people need a voice. They need a faithful priest. And God calls that same Aaron to be that faithful priest, which is interesting. And there's a sermon in there, I'm sure, why he didn't judge and condemn and choose another, but showed grace and favor to Aaron when he didn't deserve it. We'll preach that sermon another day. But what we have before us this morning and the Lord's calling his people to worship is the Lord giving the prescription of worship, what we might call liturgy, and seeing that it was meticulous. God gave all these details about how to approach his presence, that it required not just an animal, but an animal without defect, a perfect animal. And not just any kind of animal, but different kinds of animals for different kinds of purposes. The first five chapters of Leviticus are about all these different kinds of meticulous offerings. There was to be a burnt offering, a grain offering, a fellowship offering, a sin offering, a guilt offering. And the Lord was meticulous in the precise detail that he gave his people. An unblemished livestock, fowl, knives, blood splashing, blood pouring, fire, smoke, pots, forks, all kinds of detail that really mattered in the precision of the Lord's communication about worship. Not only that kind of detail, but elsewhere we see that the Lord was very precise in architecture and in ornate imagery in his worship. Exodus chapters 36 through 40, after that golden calf incident, we learn about vestments, fabrics, colors, veils, carvings, furniture, altars, bowls, courtyards, and that everything be measured in cubits. Detail after detail after detail. And then we learn in a very solemn and sobering way how serious the Lord is about the detail and about the precision and faithfulness of his worship. He says that all of this meticulous detail was to be faithfully practiced. And then in Leviticus chapter 10, right after 9, what we've just read, we get this shocking story about how serious the Lord is about his worship. Listen to Leviticus 10. The story of Nadab and Abihu. Aaron's sons, the priest's sons, Nadab and Abihu, took their censers, put fire in them, and added incense. And they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to the Lord's command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord, and it consumed them, and they died before the Lord. 
Moses then said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke of when he said, Among those who approach me, I will be proved holy. In the sight of all the people, I will be honored. And Aaron's response was to remain silent. His sons had just been consumed by fire. This is frightening. This is horrific. But it's there to tell us that the Lord is serious about his holiness and being approached the way that he said he's to be approached. Someone surely has suggested that, that an interpretation of this could be Nadab saying to Abihu, Hold my beer. I've got a great idea about how to improve the worship of God. Poof! And there's the good idea, right? No doubt it was a fine-sounding idea. Let's put some incense in this and make it smell better. That just makes things better. And the Lord burned with anger against man's addition to his worship. Man's additions or deletions were not acceptable. And the Lord could not have sent a clearer message to that fact. This should cease our innovations and cause us to make sure we keep worship simple and faithful. This should give us pause in our innovations and cause us to all agree we need to do what the Lord has told us to do and keep it simple and keep it faithful. Now in the way of application, I would say this is reason to pray for your elders in this church, for your pastor, your elders, your entire session, which is about 10 men. We're responsible to make sure we keep safe the worship of God. And there's all kinds of pressures to do all kinds of things. But at the end of the day, we're told that worship is as simple as gathering God's people, confessing our sins, being reminded that our assurance of pardon is only in the gospel, singing songs of praise in response to God, offering ourselves in tithes and offerings, being fed by the preaching of his word, responding to that in song and thanksgiving, and then having a good word of benediction spoken over us that we might go and be the people of God for six more days in the earth until we come back and confess our sins and experience renewal again. At the end of the day, that's what we're asked to give God's people, and that's what we've sought to provide God's people at Greenwood Presbyterian Church. And I know for some of you all that's been hard. You've missed some things about the convenience of being indoors, but worship never demands that we be indoors. It's great when we are and when we're comfortable and in a controlled climate. But that's not what makes worship acceptable or even beneficial. We've lost some things like childcare and nursery that maybe we'll be able to return to soon. But remember, the scriptures have never called us to have those. They're great conveniences in our 21st century. 
at the end of the day, we're called to be very careful, very simple, very faithful to gather God's people and to make sure that Christ is glorified, the gospel is heard, his people are fed, that we baptize those who profess faith or baptize the children of those who profess faith that we break bread and drink wine and experience the Lord's Supper together. You see, it's very simple, and we're to be faithful to those things. And your session, your elders that you've elected and nominated, they've been serious about being true and faithful to those simple things that we believe God has required of us. So pray for your elders. Pray for your session. No one's lived through a pandemic here before. But I promise you they're being faithful. They're seeking the Lord, and we're trying to be faithful to the simplest demanded things of us in God's Word. Remember James chapter 3, verse 1 said, No one should presume to be a teacher because they'll be judged more strictly. And we do take that seriously. We seek to be faithful. We also see that in all of this imagery and all of this precision that God gives concerning his worship, what he's given in Leviticus 9 and elsewhere, it seems intent to communicate something to us, both to the original hearers and to us. And that is, it seems to communicate God's holiness. There ain't no one like the Lord is what my Hebrew professor used to remind us is what this meant. There ain't no one like the Lord. He's not to be treated or approached like any human person. He is holy. And the second thing, all this imagery, all this blood, all this butchering seems to communicate is that we are not holy. We are sinful. And we can't come before the Lord with our own doings, with our own works. But we come before him in the precise way that he tells us to. And the third thing all of this seems to try to communicate to us seems to be the seriousness of coming into the presence of the Lord. That he is not one to be trifled with. But it is very serious to come into the presence of the Lord. And you've heard stories like I have of churches that have sought to make worship friendly, to make God approachable. You've heard stories of pastors who have driven on stage before their congregation on a Harley Davidson motorcycle to rev the engine to thrill the people. You've heard these stories. Or you've seen pastors trying to connect with the youth, the young people, with shirts that say, God is dope. Things like this. And then when we look at Scripture, we see this seriousness, this solemnity, that God is not to be approached like a man, like a human person. He's to be trembled before. He makes the earth shake, is what we heard in our call to worship. He is holy, and we are not. 
And sometimes the best of efforts to reduce God to something, someone that's comfortable for us to approach, it's well-intended. It's as well-intended as Aaron was in getting the gold earrings from the people and fashioning a golden calf that they could understand. And he reduced God to a created image. And the Lord said he burned in anger against that. That's not how he's to be approached. And let me admit, we're not saying we're approaching God perfectly. We're saying we should tremble in our efforts to approach God as he has told us to. And we do that imperfectly. But we seek to do it humbly and faithfully. Our second point in our sermon, and the first point was the longest, so don't worry. The second point of the sermon is, the Lord has always sought his people's true worship. There's nothing new in Leviticus 9. The Lord had sought his people's true worship prior to this. Old Testament, New Testament, he has sought his people's true and faithful worship. Remember how this story with God's people wandering began. In Exodus chapter 8, verse 1, the Lord said, Let my people go. Why? What was the reason given? That they may worship me. You see, the Lord was desiring his people's worship, and they were in bondage, and they were not free. And he said, let my people go that they may worship me. Worship was God's priority with his people. And it's true in the New Covenant. In John chapter 4, verse 23, Jesus says, worship in spirit and in truth. Those are the kinds of worshipers the Father seeks. God has been seeking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Not in comfort, not in convenience, not in their own way, not in their own innovations, but humbly in a spirit and with truth. And in the way of application, he's still seeking that kind of worship. Every time his people gather in whatever community they're in, he is seeking worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And this morning, as we gather in his presence and in his name, he is seeking worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And it's good to be reminded of that, to not be distracted from that, but to have that posture in our worship of the living God. Sinclair Ferguson says this about worship. He says, the foundation of worship in the heart is not emotional. Saying, I feel full of worship, or that the atmosphere is so worshipful, those can be emotions. They can be feeling-oriented. Sinclair Ferguson goes on to say, that worship is to be theo theological. Worship is not something we work up. It's something that comes down to us from the character of God. Now, I include that quote because I know in my own life and perhaps in yours, worship can be defined and determined by our feelings. That we've worshipped well when we felt like we've worshipped well. When our emotions were worked up into a lather, so to speak. Well, worship certainly can be emotional. 
But I think that Sinclair Ferguson is right. It's primarily theological that we come before God acknowledging who he is and who we are. And sometimes our feelings wax and wane. But it's theological truth that gives us standing before God. What he has said is true of himself. What he has said is true of us. What he has said is true of the gospel. And then thirdly and lastly, in all this bloodshed, in all this butchering, you know, I couldn't read through all that passage of butchering and lobes and and livers without thinking of our men's barbecue last night. As I washed meat and had it on the grill at 10.30 yesterday morning, nice pork loin, Boston butts. That's the closest Levitical priesthood event I think I'll have is the times I get to cook barbecue for you. But I want you to hear this third point, and it's in the words of Isaac Watts, the great hymn writer. And it's the opening stanza to a hymn we've probably never sung, and we're not going to sing it today. But he captures well the theme of our sermon this morning, and that is this. Not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away its stain. But Christ, the heavenly lamb, takes all our sins away. A sacrifice of nobler name and a richer blood than they. Watts captures well the teaching in the Old Covenant and the New. And this may surprise you that the God who gave all this detail about blood and butchering Listen to what Isaiah says in chapter 1 about this precise form of worship that God himself gave. Leviticus chapter 1, just a few verses of a larger section that says the same. Isaiah says to the people, the multitude of your sacrifices, your many sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams, and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to a beer before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts, your lack of justice? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. That's the word of the Lord to those who got very comfortable sacrificing animals and going through the motions, but they were an unjust people who were just going through the motions. And the Lord says, look, it was never about the blood of goats and bulls. It was about you becoming a righteous and holy man of God, woman of God, as we prayed in our pastoral prayer. And the New Testament gives us the same warning and a glimpse that the priest that we need is the priest that we have. And that's Hebrews chapter 10, just 11 through 14. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties, his bloodshed and butchering. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, 
he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. So let's connect all those dots. God's people wandering, homeless, banished from God's presence in the garden, lost and clueless. God raises up a prophet. He institutes the office of a prophet and speaks and directs and commands his people. He would give them law, Torah, the Ten Commandments. They would break it miserably, constantly. They desire to worship. Something in them wants to worship. They take matters into their own hands. They abuse worship. So God raises up the office of a priest. And he gives this precise detail of don't trifle with me. You need my presence, but when you come into my presence, come with reverence. Know that it requires bloodshed. It requires death, that sin is serious. And then we learn as the story and our people continue that they are creatures of habit, just like us. They will just go through the motions and get very comfortable doing so. And the Lord would say, look, it was never about that procedure alone. It was about your hearts. It was about righteousness and justice, about you being my people in the earth, in a sinful world. You're making crooked things straight. You're making the unrighteous righteous by bringing my image to bear. And then in the New Covenant, the author of Hebrews, connecting all the dots and giving us the bottom line that there is but one priest who offered himself as the Lamb of God for the sins of the world. And that priest sat down at the right hand of God because remember what Jesus said on the cross, it's finished, it's done. Atonement has been paid for, sacrifice has been made. And so in the person of Jesus, we have the prophet that we need who reveals the will of God for our salvation. In the person of Jesus, we have the priest that we need where the bloodshed can finally come to an end. And we have access through the Lamb of God himself who was slain for the sins of the whole world. And you might guess what we're going to do next week. The king that we need is the king that we have. Because Jesus is our prophet. He is our priest. He is our king. Let's pray that we might serve him and worship him as we should. Lord, we give you thanks. Your word written over centuries, all over the globe, different authors, different people groups, different languages, but all revealing to us the person and the work of Jesus. Lord, would you keep Greenwood Presbyterian Church faithful to your word? May we always be reverent and seeking to approach you in your holiness, always through the shed blood of Christ, always with the confidence of the forgiveness of sins in him. And then, Lord, this morning and forever, may we walk in this earth as a people with confidence that our sins, though they are many, they have been dealt with only by the blood 
of Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.